The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So was there a point as the journey continued and you noticed these things where you thought, hmm, Trump may have a shot, and if not Trump, someone like him is coming? Or was it only afterwards you pieced it together and thought, ah, I should have seen it? Welcome to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics based in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an Economy Editor for Bloomberg in Washington. So America's unemployment rate is 4.7%, close to what most economists define as full employment. Consumer confidence is back to where it was before the financial crisis. Wages are finally starting to pick up. So why the discontent? Why the division? And all the hand-wringing about our, and it is our, place in the world. Our guest, Robert D. Kaplan, has some unique observations. He spent three weeks on a coast-to-coast road trip last year and just published Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. Bob's a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, a senior advisor at Eurasia Group. He's held positions at the U.S. Naval Academy, the Defense Policy Board. He's the author of Balkan Ghosts. The list goes on and on. Bob, have I missed anything? Uh, no, but it was five weeks, actually, that okay. I spent driving, and it was uh, one of several road trips that I took across America. Great. Well, it's fabulous to have you here. Unless we're missing something, you came away something of an optimist. So what is the dominant narrative with its obsessions about inequality declinism, surging sales of George Orwell? What's that missing? Uh, I think what I saw, and I took my trip in the spring of 2015, about nine months before the first presidential primaries, when Donald Trump was just a failed celebrity New York real estate developer who people who read the New York Post knew about, but not, much, not many other people. And that wasn't for policy. Right. It wasn't. Uh, what I came away with were several things. First, probably the most important, is that the, very, the middle class, the very thing we pay lip service to, celebrate, assume exists, was disappearing before my eyes. What I saw once I got away from the coasts and away from the college towns and away from a few successful big cities like Chicago and Des Moines and Denver and Kansas City was a country where a, cert, a small amount had drifted upwards into the global cosmopolitan upper middle class elite, sipping Chardonnay at fine restaurants, even in western Nebraska, even in eastern Wyoming, uh, because the red-blue divide is not as clear-cut in person as it is on the TV screens. But the much larger percentage of people that I saw, which used to be the middle class, 
we're drifting downward into a precarious blue-collar existence that was one or two misfortunes away from poverty. And that's what you saw. You saw this stark differentiation between people who were, had benefited from globalization and people who had been left behind by it. It's almost as if the American continent, the interior continent, has been swept into the world through globalization, cyber, all of that. And a part of the population has done magnificently with it. But a much larger population simply cannot compete and find that their lives, they're employed, but they hate their jobs. Their lives are full of worries. When you overhear conversations at restaurant, bars, etc., everyone is worrying about taking care of elderly relatives, uh, pensions, uh, their medical problems, getting health insurance. Uh, it's a country united by people's worries, where in 2015, I heard very little discussion of politics. And I think what unite the explanation for that is that Donald Trump represented a kind of anti-politics. Well, I'm wondering now if I've misread portions of the book, because there is a strain of optimism that comes up. And oh, you, yes. And you derive that directly from the actual geography over yes. which you travel. It, it's a celebration and um, and uh, and a meditation upon the American landscape, and as I call it, it's the there is no geography in the world in world history better perfectly apportioned for projecting power around the globe as the American continent, the temperate zone of the American continent. And that geography is really the main character of the book. And on that geography, I'm very optimistic. But things I see here and there as I write one place, I pass through towns where pennies still mattered, where you didn't leave pennies as extras in the little, uh, you know, in the little jar. Now, uh, Bob, how does the how does this view on the geography play into the mix of uh, people you you met and conversations you heard throughout your road trip? You talk about the inequality you saw across the country, and yet at the same time, there's this unique geography uh, that this country is in that makes it very different from uh, the place where Europe is in its proximity to the Middle East, for example, uh, or some of the other geographic features, such as access to water. You know, how long can America maintain this comparative advantage? D did this road trip help reinforce that for you, or did it make you more worried? Um, uh, that's a great question. Uh, America's comparative advantage has lasted from its founding literally up until recent times. But remember, we've always been swept up more and more to the world, into the world, uh, first with ocean liners that took five days to cross the Atlantic, but at the time were a great technological marvel. And now, of course, with cyber, with jet airplanes. But remember, attrition of the same adds up to big change eventually. And now the, the interconnectedness with the rest of the world is at a far more intense level than ever before. America's comparative advantage was really built on the fact that we were the only part uh, of the 
industrialized world which did not have its infrastructure damaged during World War II. Uh, you know, Germ Germany, Russia, China, uh, Japan, England were devastated by the war, but we were in splendid isolation. We came out of World War II literally, you know, with I think half the world's industrial capacity or something. And that was that advantage lasted for decades. It really was Pax Americana. Right. And it's wearing away now. It's really wearing away. And as we become more and more immersed into the rest of the world, we find that part of our country, as I said earlier, is is succeeding at it, succeeding at globalization. The, a, a larger part is not. And so the more interconnected we become with the world, the more divisions are exposed at home, divisions that never previously existed, because in the past we had an internal market. That was another comparative advantage we had. We had an economy of scale that produced its own goods and services for its own people. So let's back up a bit for our listeners. What inspired you to take the trip the way you took it? Were you looking for something or did you have the germ of this idea and you thought, well, the only way I can really play this out is by going coast to coast? Well, um, this book had a very odd origin. I originally wanted to do a short book about a great American writer, historian, who's now been forgotten, Bernard DeVoto. And uh, I said, I should write a book on DeVoto. And people said, no, he's a minor writer. It, you know, the book's not going to do well. And I wanted to write also about my father. DeVoto inspired me about the connection of the American landscape with America projecting power. And my father inspired me with his trips across the country in the 1930s that he used to tell me about. So I put my father and DeVoto together, and that led naturally to a discovery of the American landscape, a road trip. And that led to a meditation upon America's role in the world, which is what the last chapter is all about, what our foreign policy should be based upon what I saw on the road in America. So was there a point as the journey continued and you noticed these things where you thought, hmm, Trump may have a shot, and if not Trump, someone like him is coming? Or was it only afterwards you pieced it together and thought, ah, I should have seen it? It was both, actually. I saw that there was a big change coming because I saw that the middle class was not holding. And it was the middle class that essentially acquiesced to our great military, to our involvements, not just in Iraq and Afghanistan, but to you know the great troop deployments in Europe and Japan during the Cold War. So that uh, if the middle class is eroding, the support for a 300-warship navy could also erode. All the things we take for granted could erode. And I saw a country that was alienated. But I, di I didn't piece it together with the person of Trump because he didn't exist in, in the popular mind when I made the journey. But I believe that, that there's no contradiction or very little contradiction between what I saw and described on the road and his election. Now, uh, Bob, you finished the journey in the southwestern United States and uh, all the way to San Diego. And one issue that Trump ran on and probably successfully was talking about what a bad deal NAFTA was uh, on how 
illegal immigration was pouring across the border uh, from Mexico, whether or not that was true. Now, you, you do talk about that some, somewhat in the book, but now uh, Trump is is uh, floating, or at least his press secretary floated a 20% tax on imports to pay for a proposed wall with Mexico. Uh, can, can the dynamism down there be undone so simply? You know, what were what are some more of your impressions about the you know Latino influenced parts of uh, the West and Southwest that maybe weren't able to get into in in your book? Yes. Well, not so much in this book, but in previous books of mine, An Empire Wilderness, which I published in 1998, and The Revenge of Geography, which I published in 2012, I dealt at length with Mexico. And my conclusions then were the same as now, which is that Latin history is gradually moving north that as the Mexican economy grows, as its population grows at a faster rate than that of the United States, we, our destiny is tied in with Mexico. We cannot cut it off. It's, you know, the official frontier is artificial. It's not based on much of a geographical divide. The Rio Grande River is very narrow. There, people speak Spanish, you know, consistently in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona. Uh, The U.S. dollar is the currency of choice uh, in the northern third of Mexico, so that a new country is coming into being called Mexamerica, which is sort of the northern third of, of Mexico and, say, the southern half of a number of southwestern states. It won't be an official country, but it will be a country in terms of mindset, in terms of language, and in terms of economics. And considering that, uh, we should be thinking how to build up the Mexican economy, because if Mexico wins, we win. Uh, How to get Mexico's growth rate up from, I don't know exactly what it is now, about 2% or so, up to 4%, because that helps us. What I'm worried about is uh, is this truculent messaging coming out of the White House about Mexico is going to hurt Mexico's prospects in the world economy. It's going to hurt Mexico's brand. Just as Mexico moves closer and closer away from third world status and into first world status. But, I mean, that's built a lot on intricate global supply chains. This just in. I visited a supermarket in Mexico City in August, and I'm pretty sure those carrots which said product of the USA had been back and forth across the border multiple yeah. times before they ended up in that supermarket. Now, does that supply chain ultimately defend itself? Because it sounds like you're describing the rise of an economy state, if not a nation state. That's an interesting question, because there are supply chains like that all over the world. The Chinese want to build such a supply chain from China to Europe through Central Asia called One Belt, One Road. And so the question is, does do supply chains, do the... Does the self-interest inherent in maintaining supply chains keep the peace? Uh, you know, that's the ultimate question. I'm not so sure, because I think that there is a, there is a, a large... A, a large degree of nationalism, and I'm not talking about the new surge of populism, just, you know, the normal national self-interest, uh, you know, that could lead to disruptions in supply chains. But has the nationalism run behind the economic story? 
I think for a long time it did. I think what was happening was that global elites, of which the media is a part, and not just in the United States, the global elite in Poland and Hungary and Mexico, we all have more in common with each other than we have with our own poorer countrymen. And we assumed that because our lives were better and better, and we lived in a world of high technology, people with multiple identities and multiple passports, that the rest of the world was following too. And what I saw in this road trip was that there's a large portion of the U.S. which was being left behind, and that's also true in Poland, in Hungary, in other places, which, which accounts for the populist upheavals in those countries. So even though you have these forces in you know, not just the United States, but other countries, like you said, around Europe, uh, you know, even across Asia, uh, several countries, is there a reason or is, is it possible to say that the geographic nature of the United States or geographic features would uh, lessen the forces of inequality uh, as compared with a place like Poland, which is hemmed in on multiple sides by economic and potential security rivals? Our geography worked to unite the country in the 19th and part of the 20th century. Our people crossed the Appalachians and then found a flat panel of rich soil, the Midwest, where the differences among different immigrant groups could be ground down and, a, and an American culture could be formed. So our geography worked towards unity for many parts of our history. Our river system is not perpendicular like in Russia, which divides the country even more. It's diagonal so that all the waters flow into the Missouri and Mississippi river systems, enabling trade and commerce from the early 19th century onward. It was a geography that worked towards unity. But now this geography is being undone by the fact that our people live in a global civilization where some do better than others and certain parts of the country do better than others. So let's talk about what happened when you got to the Pacific. You describe, uh, in rather awe-inspiring terms, the site of the U.S. Pacific Fleet at San Diego. Talk a little bit about what went through your mind and your heart when you saw it. I saw, finally, after weeks upon weeks of traveling through a virtual desert, because remember, the Great American, the Great Plains are technically a desert. They just happen to be irrigated. It gets less than 20 inches of rainfall per, uh, per year. Between, say, the middle of Nebraska and the California coast, for much of that terrain, you're in what is technically a desert, desert or a semi-desert. And suddenly you come upon the ocean and Naval Base San Diego, and you see lined up as far as the eye could see one warship after another, one or two carriers, one or two submarines, many more destroyers, cruisers, and frigates, and that each of these platforms cost $4 billion for each destroyer, $18 billion for an aircraft carrier with all the planes on it. And you see, you see essentially America's biggest, most important strategic instrument – 
the American Navy, because it's more important than our nuclear arsenal, because our nuclear arsenal is a taboo that can never be used uh, practically. But our Navy is around the world on any given day. And it occurred to me we conquered a desert the Great Plains, in order to become a sea power. Because once we were on both oceans, then we were a veritable maritime nation. And that sea power, uh, 300 warships, it's actually now like 278, it's going to go up to 313. But think of it in terms of 300 warships and a Coast Guard, which which if it was called a Navy, would be the 12th largest Navy in the world. So you see that conquering the dry land temperate zone of North America enabled us to become a, a world power. And you see it at a point of concision at Naval Base San Diego. Now, how many of the people who voted for Trump who said they worried about depletion of the military have actually seen what you've seen? Oh, very few. How many of them have even seen the Pacific? First of all, most people in our country, even elites, when they think of a military, they think of the Army or the Marines, because you only see warships if you live on the coast near a naval base. Think about it. Very few Americans have actually seen a warship. But it's our warships combined with our air forces. Uh, we, We have a system called numbered air forces. So there are many American Air Forces. It's our Navy and Air Force that essentially project power across the earth on every single day. Our Army and Marines are only there for unexpected contingencies. But because contingencies cannot be predicted, we find that our our land forces are in the news often. So they think we're in decline in the military just because they heard it on, say, a competitor network? Exactly. It, look, this, it, regardless of Iraq, irregardless of Afghanistan, America has far and away the greatest military in the world because of its Navy and Air Force and because of the uh, experience that our ground forces got in Iraq and Afghanistan that no other military has gotten, essentially. We have to wrap up. We could talk about this forever. I never even got to read one of my favorite passages from the book. But okay, it's 2020. You're going to do the trip again? If you do, what do you think you'll find? I think I'll find um, a greater urban spread. Uh, you know, the, the suburbs will have expanded into exurbs. There will be no difference between Lawrence, Kansas uh, uh, and, uh, and Kansas City. They'll have conglomerated into one place. Um, you know, Spokane, Washington will be together with Idaho. There'll be more peop- more, or even more urban people, and the urban terrain will take up even greater uh, uh, amounts of space. But there'll still be a great divide between urban and rural. Does Trump hold those supporters in those states, and is it enough to get him across the line again? He can hold those supporters if the economy grows. Uh, but it's unclear that pump priming the economy with uh, lower, you know, doing away with regulations, with lowering taxes, etc., can pump prime the con- economy if the stock markets are increasingly upset by political news, like since he was inaugurated. 
Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com and our newly revamped Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at at Scott Landman. And Dan, you are at Moss underscore Eco. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson, and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.